little really special day today for several reasons, as Daniel mentioned, and uh, I'm not going to be able to say all that I want to say today, so here's my promise. I'm going to send everybody an email this week, okay? Will y'all open it and read it? Just some cool things about um, this weekend and the, this really historic uh, in the life of our church. There were a lot of people here at 930 to close down a church called Woodland Hills Baptist who built this place in 1948. And there were, uh, I wasn't in the room. I preached an earlier service that we had at 930, but I sent Nick Crawford. He was a spy in the land, a mole in their midst. And he said that there were a lot of folks and a lot of emotion. And here's what I love. I'll pass this on to you, fighting my own emotion back. But they said that, uh, Nick said they said a lot of great things about Fondren Church. And uh, their trust in us. And so as they close down, they're passing the baton to us. And I pray that we'll be humble and hungry people and up for the task. And uh, don't you appreciate Will and Hills? They can't hear, hear you, but I feel like we should clap. I had a wedding uh, yesterday in Florence, not Italy, unfortunately, but in uh, Rankin County, 49 South. And it was one of those days where it was, you know, cool for a May day. Can we say that with rain, heavy, intermittent rain throughout the day? And I just was tired, a little sleep deprived because I've been off vacation. I was just tired, you know, vacations wear us out, don't they? And I was just, I needed some sleep. I'm like, I'm going to take a nap. And I I can nap well. My wife can't nap, but I can nap. And nap is a very uh, good, glorious, godly thing at times. And so I laid down, uh, snuggled up to uh, the love of my life, my 100-pound golden retriever. And uh, y'all thought, y'all didn't think I was going to tell the weight of my wife, did you? I mean, come on. Where'd you think I was going with that one? And I, but I had this fear. I couldn't sleep. I wanted to. I couldn't get the nap because I thought I'm going <clears> to, I could just keep on sleeping and miss the wedding. And you can't, I don't know what you can't do in your job, but you can't be a pastor and miss a wedding. Like that's the, <clears throat> that's the cardinal sin. You know that, right? I'm talking to you young bucks that are doing, starting to do weddings yourself. You can't do that. And look, a big part of life is just knowing what matters. A big part of life is figuring out what's really important and knowing what you can't miss. What matters, what's the meaning of it, what's important, what's transcended. And I think some of us go through life with this gnawing, this sensation deep within us that maybe, maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're not really realizing what matters, what's really important. I don't want you to do that today. And so I'm going to preach uh, hopefully it's not going to sound like I'm preaching at you, but uh, this could be in some ways a, a convicting word. Some of you tell me. You'll send me emails and say, man, I like it when you challenge us. I want to be challenged. <clears throat> well, today I'm going to test that theory in you, okay? Uh, Jimmy Stewart, Dr. Jimmy Stewart, our very own, preached last week. He opened this series on the soul with the soul and depression. I hope you were here or you've been able to listen online or that you will listen online. The psalmist in Psalm 42, as Jimmy led us, asked the question, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Anybody there today? Anybody low? Anybody, that's your struggle, that's your battle, anxiety, depression. Why are you so downcast? We looked at that last week, and today we're going to look at a question, really a compound question, that Jesus threw at his listeners and to us today on the meaning of it all. What matters? Don't miss it. And here he says in Matthew 16, he asked the question, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? A compound question. A question that we would do well to heed today. In looking at this, allowing this to serve as a backdrop, I want you to just take a snapshot, uh, you could with your phone, or just take a mental snapshot at the compound question that Jesus asked and file it away 
Because what I want to do is deviate a bit. You'll see where we're going, I think. But I want to look at a couple of different stories. One is a story that Jesus told. And then another is um, a group of people in the early church in Corinth who were a, a community who were formed around practicing the way of Jesus. Which isn't that what a church should be about? Way past denominational affiliation or membership in a local body, shouldn't that be what the church is about? Learning to follow Christ, learning to practice His way. I want us to challenge us this morning. There was a, a man who approached Jesus. He was wealthy. He was young in the prime of his life. He was educated. And because of those factors, because of those descriptions of who this man was, he became known as this, and I know you've heard of this, he became known as the rich, young ruler. All those words, I think, are important. I want you to pick up on. In fact, if you're, uh, if you play golf on the weekends and drive a Jaguar and wear a Brooks Brothers suit, Armani polish, and have a Rolex, you're a rich, old ruler. And this guy was a rich, young ruler. He was in the prime of his life. Uh, he had a gym membership with a personal trainer that would work him out several times a week. He would go see a therapist once a week. He had one of those Apple watches that he looked at and it had one of those apps, you know, that helped him with meditation and centering himself. He had a lot going on for him. Young, wealthy, prime of life. If he was, if he was in our day, he'd be one of those tech guys, you know, that left an established business and did the startup to get big really quick, you know, reach unicorn status very quickly. And that was this guy, the rich, young ruler. And what I want to say to you about him today, some people miss this in this story, he had a good heart. He had a good heart. In fact, he came to Jesus, he initiated. And you think about it, most people who come to Jesus come with a a sense of neediness. Would you agree with that? You think of Scripture, you think of all the stories, the blind, the beggar, the lame, the leper. And then you think of us. I mean, we come. When do you come to Jesus? How do you approach Jesus? Do you do it casually, flippantly, sporadically, haphazardly? How do you approach Jesus? Do you come with a sense of entitlement? And this rich man was also a good man. And he comes to Jesus, and here's how he addresses him. Some of you know this. He approaches Jesus, and he says, Good teacher. This man had a good life. He had a life that we could in many ways envy. All that he possessed, but he also had a sense that something was missing and that he was doing a lot of the right things. And he knew that Jesus was the expert, the recognized expert on the good life. He wanted to have a good life. He felt like he was enjoying a good life, but something was missing. He wanted to learn more about the good life. So why not go to the expert? Any of y'all do that? I, I make a living doing that. Like I'm dumb on a ton of things and I just find the expert in this field and that field. Sometimes you got to pay them money, but I just go to the expert and say, help me, teach me. And that's what Jesus is doing. Or rather the rich young ruler is doing with Jesus. Teach me the, the good life. It would be like a younger Bill Gates going to Warren Buffett and asking him how to make and invest more money. It would be like Steph Curry going to Michael Jordan and saying, teach me, you know, how can I have more titles? It would be like Taylor Swift going to Beyonce and saying, how can I sing more beautifully about ex-boyfriends who trash me? It was just one of those things. And this is Jesus. This is this ruler going to Jesus saying, teach me about the good life. And look at this next uh, important phrase. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Now, this is edgy Jesus. This is not Mr. Rogers, blue sweater, won't you be my neighbor Jesus. This is Jesus who asks a question 
And he asked a question signaling to this man that he will not be manipulated by his flattery. That this conversation, in fact, is not going to go in the direction that he thinks it's going to go. Why do you call me good? And I love the phrase here. I think Mark includes it. By the way, this is included in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke, the three accounts, three of the four accounts. But he, he says this. Mark gives us this account, this next phrase here, that I think is important. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Maybe Mark included it because Jesus got edgy with him. Maybe he included it because Jesus signaled to him, this conversation is not going to go the way that you want it to go, that I'm not going to be manipulated with your flattery. Maybe that was it. But I want to say to you today, I don't want to miss this opportunity. That when you come to Jesus, and you put that honest struggle, and you put that question at His feet, He looks at you in love. That's the amazing thing about this man. He looks at you in love when you're honest with Him. And I think Jesus loved him because he saw his heart. I think he saw his courage. I think he saw a man in the midst of some obstacles lay it out there and put that honest question before him. And that's what I want to challenge some of you to think about in this very moment. He looked at him and he loved him. That's our God. That's our Savior. That's the message. There's no more important message than that. Now, the man, Jesus talked to this man about the good life. He asked him what he thought about it. He told him that the good life was keeping the commandments. And he knew that this man knew the commandments. Jesus went through them. He didn't go A to Z, but he went through several of the Ten Commandments. And he said, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't become a false witness. Mom and daddy, treat them good. Honor them. And the man, this rich young ruler, in his mind... He's going through that, and he's thinking murder, check, adultery, didn't, hadn't done that, check, perjury, hadn't done that, check, mom and dad, love them, check, 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 check. And he says aloud to Jesus, after scanning, listening, and scanning in his head and his heart, he says, I have kept these commandments since I was a boy. And Jesus follows this up, and he says this, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. But what Jesus doesn't do in this moment is directly point out what the man lacks. He takes a different approach and he gives him a command. And this command is four verbs that would haunt this man. Here are these verbs. Go, sell, give, follow. Now when Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, what did he say? Anybody remember? Follow me. When Jesus called Andrew and Peter, what did he say? He said, follow. Follow me. When Jesus called James and John and all these guys, what did he say? It was really a one-command invitation to follow me. But here, it's the fourth command, preceded by these three, go, sell, and give. These would be the verbs that would haunt this man. Why did Jesus do this? I think it's because Jesus knows. He's an expert at detecting the rivals of our hearts. Like he knows. You may fool and hoodwink the people that you love and that you live with. In fact, some of you are a good, you do a good at it. But not Christ. 
He's good at detecting the rivals in our hearts and he knows to take on a new master, you have to let go of the old. And so let's pause the story of the rich young ruler as we ask the questions about what you give in exchange for your soul. I want us to look at a passage of early Jesus followers. It comes to us from 1 Corinthians 16. It says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. I've taught you, I think, many times over that Jesus never said, go make churches. He did say, go make disciples. And in making disciples, what happens out of that? Churches form, and what do churches need? Churches need leaders. Churches need good leaders. Churches need leaders with a Christ-like character. Our church needs the right kind of leaders. I hope you pray for our leaders. I hope you'll step into leadership as God calls and qualifies you. I hope you pray for me. Tonight, we're ordaining a new group of deacons right here in this room this evening. We want godly women and men to lead in our church. And that's what we see in this. But I want to take this, this practice of early Jesus followers, just a couple of important phrases from this. As we think about our soul and eternity and what's temporal and about possessions and what we cling tightly and clutch tenaciously in this life. The first phrase is here, collection for the Lord's people. This is a phrase used several times in the New Testament, not just here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And this was the early practice. And in this specific case, Paul gets an idea. He is seeing what Jesus taught and personified and exemplified that a new age has dawned, that there's a a new covenant and soon a new testament. Uh, There is this beautiful thing called the church that has been raised up and followers of Jesus loving and organizing and walls are being broken down. Can I just say something real quick? If walls are being built, something's wrong. If walls are being built, I don't know that Jesus is in that. But when walls are broken down and people that hadn't been loving each other start loving each other, Jesus is all up in that. Like that reflects Him. And you see Gentiles and Jews had been age-old enemies. And this collection, to be specific, it was a collection coming primarily from Gentile believers to poor Jewish believers, new Christians in Jerusalem. Now this is a pretty crazy idea. I told the 930 crowd earlier this morning, if you're following Jesus, He's going to give you some crazy ideas. If you sense that there's a movement, that it's not just a stale monument or institution, and you follow Him, He's going to give you some crazy ideas. And Paul, being a leader, being the leader that he was, he asked a couple of questions that every leader needs to ask in following God. Number one is the question of, you know, how do we communicate this? How do we communicate this new family, this new covenant, this new work that God's doing? And what would be the concrete sign? People need a sign, don't they? If something's new is happening, you're going to buy in. You're going to be a part of it. You're going to want to see a manifest presence of that reality. And that's what's happening here. And so Paul, this God-ordained idea, Paul says, let's get the Gentiles, who are largely poor people, some of them even peasants, would give offerings and it would be given to these new Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, the really poor ones. Now listen, that would be like going to Uber and raising money for Lyft. That'd be like going to Oxford, you know, talking about what Startwell needs or Startwell talking about what Ole Miss needs. You, you get that, right? That's like an impossible thing. 
A very impossible thing. And it wouldn't happen, but guess what? It happened. And it became a regular part of the Jesus people. It became a part of the way of following Jesus. Second phrase that really important. They did it on the first day of every week. Now this phrase also is used repeatedly in the New Testament. I don't know if you're going to remember this until I tell you now, but that we use this phrase from our Easter sermon just two weeks ago. Last time I preached here was Easter Sunday two weeks ago. I was wearing a tie. And I said on the first day from Matthew 28, on the first day of the week, what the, they said, he is not here. In Matthew 28, 1, in Mark 16, 1, in John 20, 1, in Luke 24, 1, this phrase is used as well as 1 Corinthians 15 and what we looked at 16 on the very first day of the week. It doesn't say the second day of the week. It doesn't say the third day. It doesn't say wait to the seventh day when you got some money. It says on the very first day of the week. You see the collection for the Lord's people. I want to tell you today, here's what it means. I want to translate it to us today. There's no greater financial investment you can make than in God's kingdom. There is no greater investment you can make than in God's kingdom. And we learn here that it needs to be priority on the first day of the week. If you know your Bible, you'll know that there, the Jewish people had a Sabbath day. Praise God for Sabbath. I hope you get Sabbath rest. Work hard for six days and then uh, say it out loud. What's the Sabbath day about? It's about rest. I think you could throw in worship, but nothing else. Rest and worship. I was in Israel, specifically Jerusalem, last February, and we saw people running with bags and stuff to, from the market to get home so they could honor the Sabbath. When the Sabbath started, they needed to get home so they weren't doing anything. And the Sabbath was the seventh day until the resurrection. And it became the first day. And the first day is priority day. The resurrection should even affect our finances. Our finances and the way we deal with, with our uh, possessions should be affected by the way of Jesus and the resurrection, that we give priority to this. And everybody, the first day means it's a priority. You don't wait until you have money left over because what? I know y'all, you ain't going to have any money left over. Nobody's going to have money left over unless you make it a priority. And that's what God calls us to be about, to follow Jesus, is to give to Him first, to collect for us to do that together. Paul would say to Timothy, he would say in 1 Timothy 6, warning us about the material world that we live in, learning, uh, teaching us to cultivate the interior life of the soul that is eternal. He would say, command those who are rich. It, it, he didn't say wait until people feel like it. In fact, he said, be a leader. Grow some and stand up in front of them and say, give, be careful. Be careful. Command those who are rich. Now, who's rich? If you're rich, stand up. Don't. Several months ago, I remember this vividly. I got up in the morning and I, you aren't going to believe this, I had to move a car. I won't tell what family member, but there was a car. One of their cars was parked behind my car. And I, I'm kidding, you know, I had to move their car in order to get in my car to go where I needed to go. Now, isn't that a travesty? And I was just grumbling about it. I mean, it was morning, so I'm naturally going to grumble, right? Man, I was grumbling about it because one of them parked their car in front of my car. Now, I didn't fuss about it to them. I just kind of grumbled inwardly and thought, I'll use this as a sermon illustration months from now. Why did I grumble? 
Any guesses? I grumbled because I didn't have anybody from a developing third world country with me who lives in a house a lot smaller than mine and yours. Who don't, they don't, they don't only not, a, not have a car, they couldn't even dream about a car. And that's why I grumbled. God was funny to me that day. I don't want to get all mystical to you, but someone bumped into me and they asked if I could uh, buy him a bus ticket. And God was whispering to me, don't just buy him a bus ticket, but like get on the bus and go home with him, ride with him. And I did that. I actually bought the bus ticket, got on the bus, rode with him, and ran back. I had all my running gear. I needed to run, but also needed the ride. I needed to be reminded that I am rich. I need to be reminded that I gripe and grumble and live with a sense of ingratitude and entitlement. There's nothing, nothing like generosity to break the grip of that. And I'm telling you this, not because I want something from you, but I want this for you. Do you hear me? You need to be generous. To follow Jesus is to be generous. Another thing, Scripture says each one of you and this was revolutionary in the Roman world. And sadly, it's got to be a little bit revolutionary here in America. And unfortunately, even in this room of ours, each one of you. And here's the contrast. The contrast is not the wealthy few, but each one of you. In Rome, in Corinth, Philippi, in places where people were following Jesus in the first century, there was a group of people, um, they were the wealthy few. In fact, there was a technical term for it. They were called patrons. You can look this up. The patrons, uh, they were folks who would give some money away. Now, they had a lot, and they would give money away, and they would do it for show. And the people that received the money, a technical term for that, they were the peasant folk, but they were known as clients. And they were not, as they received this, they were not empowered economically to go on to live better lives. They were stuck. And that's hard for you and I to understand, right? Because we, we've all grown up uh, learning about and hearing examples of the American dream. Okay, the American dream. You know, we can uh, a penniless immigrant can come over to Ellis Island and through hard work, success, maybe throw in a little luck or sovereignty, and that person can become a wealthy business tycoon. That's the American dream. But there was no dreaming. There was no dreaming for the clients. In fact, the giving was for show in a very literal way, the clients would walk the streets of the marketplaces in the cities and they would see some of the wealthy, uh, the patrons, and they would play trumpet to them to pay homage to their magnificent generosity. And this was a society that Jesus came into where there was wealthy few and they were giving and people would stay down. People were not empowered. Lives weren't being changed like they could have been, should have been. And the wealthy few, it was for them to be built up and to be esteemed. And Jesus says there ought to be a new community and a different way where everybody, each one of you, participates in giving. Not just a wealthy few of us. So let's back up to the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, we know in this story, his face fell. You see, he wanted to be a part of the good life, but he wanted his riches. He wanted to call the shots. He wanted to have the authority all to himself. And in Matthew 16, it plays out this way. Jesus tells those who are listening, he says that for all of you, don't put it up just yet, Margaret, I'll hold the list for a second. But he says to you, to, to them, if you give up for everyone that's given up home and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and fields and ch children, you'll be given back 
you'll be given back homes and brothers and sisters and mothers, listen to me, and children and fields. What do we miss there? Anybody hear it? Here's the list. This will be easy. Jesus taught them, you give up this and you'll, be, you'll get back this. What will a man give in exchange? When you give up this, you'll get back this. What's missing? Anybody want to guess why? There's a Latin phrase for it, if we could put it up. Pater familias. This is the patriarchal society. The patriarchal society where the man was dominant. The patriarchal society where the man really ruled, where he was the Alpha and Omega. He had the really only say, and of course, the final say. And Jesus, we're learning, is setting up a whole new society where there's a new father, where there's a new authority, and really, y'all, only one authority of which the knee bows. And it's a new community that we get to be a part of. A community where we ask what matters the most. A community where there, we have to realize that there's nothing like status and hierarchy and a caste system and wealth and socioeconomics that divides us and hurts us and allows us to hold on to things where we can't fully be free people and we can't empower other people to be free people. Years, years, years ago, when I just had a couple of kids and we lived out in Southern California, we, I took a couple of these kids through a drive-through at In-N-Out Burger. Aren't you grateful? Y'all know about In-N-Out Burger. Um, Jesus invented the man who invented In-N-Out Burger. And we went through the drive-through, but this particular time, this season, I was on a diet. It was a self-imposed diet from the devil. And I had a salad waiting at home, a salad with no croutons or crackers and low-fat dressing, and I was just smelling the In-N-Out Burger from the back seat. I was the only adult in the car, and I just, I just, I just felt, man, I could, if I just could get some fries, I'd be happy. And so what I do? Again, the only adult in the car. I've got, I've got rule over them. I reach back to grab some fries, and a child's hand hit my hand, and they said, "That's mine." And again, I was the only adult in the car, so I gave him a speech. An angry, passionate speech. And I said, you know, I slave and I work hard to, have, to give you everything you have. This car you're riding in, I bought it. The clothes you're wearing, I bought those clothes. Those french fries that you're clutching to and hoarding like a little twerp. I bought those fries. And here's the thing. I ask you, where, where did they get that? The answer is not their mother. Where did they get that? Something we all learn early on. Mine. Everybody. Everybody. You're not, you're not exempt. Everybody. Everybody learns this. But something that he wants for all of us to learn to say is the opposite of that. And that's nothing is mine. And so as we go back to this question, the compound question that Jesus asked, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What's he going to profit? He forfeits that. So here's a quick assignment. Stand with me if you will. And the clock is broken on the wall so I have no clue. Get, some, get a bunch of self-adhesive notes this, this week. And write the word temporal on a bunch of them. And write the word eternal on a bunch of them. And then go around and label things, things that are temporal. Like if you're at the house, your toaster, your TV, your treadmill, the treadmill you never use, just put that self-adhesive note that says temporal on it because it's not going to last. 
And then the, the notes that you have eternal, walk around. Put one on your roommate or your spouse or your best friend. Just slap it on their forehead. Put one on the stranger behind the counter. The only thing, put, put, it behind, put, put one on the person that you've struggled to love. The person you've most struggled to love in this world. Because they're eternal. And don't miss this, the only thing. Here's what's eternal. God Himself. Other people. All people. Your soul. And listen to this. The deeds of love. Not the feelings of love. Not love unexpressed. But the deeds of love. Father, bless this time of prayer and invitation.